Oh, man. 2020. When people look back on this terrible, no good, mostly bad year, I think they'll see it as a decisive break with the past, a break with everything that came before it. 2020 was like this cascade of watershed events, one after the other. The pandemic, the massive racial justice protests of June and July, the unseating of Donald Trump this fall. Each, in its own way, forced tens of millions of Americans to see the world with fresh eyes and also to feel our interconnections with one another and the rest of life on Earth. But for all the talk of a return to normalcy under a Joe Biden administration, it's clear that millions of citizens have little desire to go back to the way things were. What will come after, though? What does a brighter future look like? At least we know this. The economic and social disparities laid bare by the pandemic require that we build an economy that works for all people. The reality of racism demands reparative justice. The string of climate change-related extreme weather events, the searing heat waves, the destructive floods, the terrifying wildfires, they require us to accelerate the transition to renewable energy. But how? What do we even start to build this better world? I'm Jason Mark, and on this episode of The Overstory, together, you and me, we start to imagine a better world, a shared, brighter future. We're going to hear from Kristen Jeffers. She's a black, queer urbanist who is redesigning and reimagining our future cities. Look into some of the local interventions, what you would do to start a farm, start a restaurant, start a clothing store, start using your car less. We'll also hear from Melissa Nelson about how to indigenize conservation. It's time that we honor that knowledge and their rights as the sovereign people of those areas. And Marianne Hitt with a hopeful imagining of a clean energy future. I know that if we were to tackle this crisis, our lives would be better. And the Sunrise Movement's co-founder and executive director, Varshini Prakash. Now our generation's standing up to say, we are ready to be the adults in the room. We are ready to take the future into our own hands. We are ready to envision reality in a different way. The future is a work in progress, and the success or failure of that work depends on all of us. So let's get started. We're going to begin today with Melissa Nelson. She's a native ecologist, writer, and academic. She and I recently talked about a, quote, new approach to land management that's actually older than the United States itself, indigenous conservation and stewardship. So, Melissa, we've, we've met before, we've worked before, and had the chance to collaborate. Um, but I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners yeah, thank you, Jason. So greetings, everyone. I greet you all as relatives in my Anishinaabe or Ojibwe or Chippewa language. Um, I have been fortunate to grow up in um, Northern California and um, study ecology and revitalize my indigenous roots as a tribal member of the Turtle Mountain Chippewa Nation. I'm also Norwegian, so I have mixed race heritage and always trying to balance kind of those different worldviews and ways. I, for almost three decades, have been directing a native nonprofit organization, the Cultural Conservancy, where I've really been um, 
on the ground with indigenous communities working to protect their lands and relatives and um, restore their cultural traditions. And then I've been a professor of American Indian Studies and now a professor of indigenous sustainability. Um, so this is part of my my passion and my life and my heritage and my work. So I'm so blessed to be able to do this work. So Melissa, I want to ask you a question that we've been talking to other guests about for this show, which is that when myself and the other Sierra editors started reaching out to authors and activists in the late summer and early fall, asking them if if they could, you know, imagine a brighter future, a lot of people had a hard time with it, just given the state of the world. And I'm wondering for you, was this assignment to imagine a brighter future was it difficult or was it, did it, did it feel like it kind of flowed? Did it come easily or maybe somewhere in between? What a wonderful question. Thank you, Jason. Um, I am thrilled. I was thrilled by this assignment. I think I responded, you know, the minute I saw your email and I was like, oh my God, this is such a great question. And in such dark times of, you know, profound pain in the world and in our country and division, we have to envision. If we don't, we're we're really lost. I mean, if we can't rely on our creativity and our imaginations and our ability to dream and hope and vision, um, I I really took the challenge very seriously. And of course, you know, I had to lay out some obstacles because there's a lot of obstacles that keep preventing us from getting to a world that is truly sustainable and just for all people and all beings. You came to us with an essay that's called Time to Indigenize Conservation. So, you know, these are huge, big, important ideas. This kind of what I almost call like deep wisdom space. And then you say, okay, well, how are we going to take these ideas and make them into programs and policies that will really lead to decolonization and will really lead to, to decolonizing lands conservation and lands and water stewardship and you share with readers the idea of, or the practice, I guess I should say, of traditional ecological knowledge. Like, break it down. What does that mean? What does traditional ecological knowledge mean? Absolutely. Um, traditional ecological knowledge is the, the knowledge, practices, values, and life ways of indigenous peoples who have lived in particular geographies for hundreds and thousands of years. You know, you take a place like Taos Pueblo or Acoma Pueblo, right? The, they have lived continuously in those places for hundreds, thousand years of ceremony in the same place in the same Rio Grande watershed. And so to say Native people didn't have a written language is a little false because they had a symbolic written language, but more just incredible memorization of stories uh, in songs and chants that encoded ecological knowledge about watersheds and species when this species showed up and when that one left us and when the river was really high and when there was no rain and the corn came in and also migrations, other people came in. So that body of knowledge over the generations is what we call traditional ecological knowledge. 
And so it's time that we really honor that knowledge and the people who hold that language um, and those stories and their rights as the sovereign people of those areas. So we can do that through, you know, co-management, through partnerships, through returning land, repatriating land, rematriating land, um, through education, through advocacy, through policies. Um, I'm very excited about, you know, the new uh, administration and really starting to diversify and honor some of this knowledge and some of our public land policies. You mentioned co-management. I understand that in some native nations that's, you know, that can be controversial in terms of it's sort of like, well, it's our land. We, you know, we should be the primary managers, not the co-managers. And at the same time, it is somewhat encouraging, right? There are some, I understand it, like forest service districts and some national parks, right, that have started to actually tiptoe in a little bit on doing, um, using traditional ecological knowledge? Yes, definitely. Uh, It's a wonderful step in the right direction. And actually, um, First Nations in Canada and Aboriginal tribes in Australia have been experimenting with co-management of parklands for decades already. Um, U.S. is a little slower to it with our national parks and our, you know, quote, public lands. But it's absolutely a step in the right direction. As we know, funds for federal dollars for public lands management is always up and down depending on, you know, allocations and budgeting. And, you know, it's millions of acres of land that is traditional indigenous lands. And so, you know, they admit the Park Service and BLM, they don't have the the budgets or the staff to manage these vast areas. And that's when you get illegal logging, illegal mining, you get trespassing, you get Desecration of, you know, cultural heritage sites because no one can monitor it. So why not return those lands to the native peoples? That was their traditional territories. Often, if you look at the original treaties and reservation land bases, they included much larger swaths of land. And then they got really, you know, shrunk down to these little postage stamps of, of tribal lands. So why not open up those lands for co-management or full management by the local tribes as partners to really decide a long-term, you know, land care management plan for those areas to protect those sites and those habitats and those species. I'm, I guess you could say I'm a dreamer. Um, I love to envision, you know, ecotopian futures and I want to live ecotopian futures and, you know, being blessed to grow up in Northern California, I've seen many experiments, you know, of people really trying to live differently and live more um, locally and in balance um, within their footprint, so to speak. So, uh, and tribal people knowing some of, you know, the indigenous stories of my ancestors and of other native peoples, we talk about this time, a time of great disruption and upheaval politically, and our leaders will fail us and our, you know, lands will be poisoned and the storms will increase and we have prophecies that talk about this time, and we also talk about we're at a crossroads, and we can create a better world. And I really have hope and faith in a lot of the young people and a lot of the elders who still hold this wisdom that we can get through this. You know, I I don't know. Nobody knows, right? The jury's still out. Um, but I think we have to keep envisioning 
these new futures and work towards them. Otherwise, you just give up and you don't get out of bed and you're just depressed. And like, you know, sadly, a lot of people we see are self-medicating and suicide. And, you know, now we have this pandemic and um, there's a lack of hope that is very, very troubling. Um, But I think there's enough to hang on to. And we always have the strength of the earth and the strength of, you know, our relatives, these other species that have been around a lot longer than we have to kind of remind us what it means to be humble and resilient and work with instead of trying to power or dominate over. Well, thank you for doing that. What I would say is is, is truly like the, the hard work of dreaming. I mean, it's it's real labor and it's real work and it's important. Yeah, well, I think we we have models of of good living before, you know, we do, and we can we can do it again in new ways. Um, but it's going to be a, a big transformation, and that's scary, right, for all of us to completely transform the way we've been living. But it's possible. That was Melissa Nelson. You'll probably want to read her full essay. It'll be available on our website later this month, or become a member of the Sierra Club, and you'll get the magazine in the mail. On her website, Kristen Jeffers is pretty clear about what she is and what she isn't. Her work is a place for black, queer, feminist, urbanist thought, but she's not your one black friend educating on issues of racism and urbanism and design. Her work, she says, is a learning experience and a chance to change the world. One of our editors, Heather Smith, talked to Kristen about her brighter urban future. You wound up very generously writing this story for Sierra during pretty much one of the wildest times in American history. Um, What was that like? Um, When July, June, July hit, it was like, okay, I'm glad the world is kind of catching up to the fact that we need to do something about this. For me, I I had set a goal in the beginning of 2020 to really center fellow Black women, specifically Black, queer, women and non-binary folks who were already doing this work. But now, of course, the first take of this essay, as you remember, was even a little bit darker. But then I, I just stopped myself. I was like, okay, well, what What if we don't have the dark side of this? What if what things need to be done and what needs to happen in order for us to be able to feel like we can have a future? And um, that's why I really thought about saying, hey, well, there'll be people in the future. We're going to be here. Somebody's going to be here. I come from a legacy of Black women um, public educators, uh, principals, classroom teachers of all subjects. And I was like, well, what could we do? Like, maybe what we're looking at is what we've already done. Could you just talk a little bit about what you envisioned for your bright future? So I guess if I were to say anything to summarize everything that I talked about in my article It would be being flexible and creating institutions, places, vehicles that are flexible and offer multiple options for access and capital creation. We're going to be dealing with global pandemics. So um, one of the things I talked about was being flexible about space, um, really extending what happens at farmers markets out and beyond. We're going to see more outdoor use of uh, commercial use of space. Uh, We're still going to see indoor shopping malls. We're going to see revamped town centers. We're going to see then we're going to start seeing homes be built or be revamped to be flexible for home office. 
I feel like a lot of cities, if they were to shed um, a lot of these restrictive laws and restrictive entities and the things that enforce these restrictions, there will be more room to provide necessary services. I, I want to see us take some of that defense and policing spending and put it back into public health, put it back into schooling. And so I would want to see more um I would want to see a lot of police stations convert into public health centers. I would want to see them convert into like um, educational centers, like extensions of the community college, um, apprenticeship centers for high schools, um, smaller elementary operations so that kids could go maybe all day long, like daycares, early childhood, as well as just, you know, be providing things like arts and um, music and extra tutoring, um, community kitchens. And so we could feed their cities, provide free public transit, provide more health care. We may have been able to catch the COVID pandemic sooner if we had had more health centers and people knew that they could get health. Really giving public entities the opportunity to not be punitive entities, not be enforcers, not be brutal, but to be human scaled and loving and caring and small enough and well-funded enough for them to be friendlier. You also had a really interesting quote in your essay, this line, we can no longer build in ways that tax our natural resources and our own human health and well-being. Yeah, uh, I definitely see us becoming better at cleanliness uh, by default and demanding something like that. If we can lower the temperature of the earth by being more stationary for things we weren't able to be stationary for before, like commuting to an office or commuting to a massive school building or even needing as many clothes. Um, I'm already, you know, many of us have reduced the amount of clothing that we wear on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis. I'm very well aware that there's a lot to do. And I think it starts with, obviously, it's starting with who we've elected into the White House at the federal level. And we have, there's a lot of federal regulations that impede growth, but there's a lot of people, there's a lot of things we can do that are on the local level, on the grassroots level. And I want to encourage listeners to look into some, some of the local interventions, look into what you would do uh, to start a farm, start a restaurant, start a clothing store, start um, using your car less homeschool your children, look into what you would do to do that locally. And you'll probably find out about some sustainable and some collective and community oriented options to all the things you're doing on a major scale until government at all levels catches up to the needs of the community in these areas. Kristen, thank you so much for talking with us. And thank you for having me. I'm so happy I've been able to share today. That was Kristen Jeffers talking to Sierra Magazine's science editor, Heather Smith. You can read Kristen's full essay later this month at our website, sierramagazine.org, or check out her own website, theblackurbanist.com, to learn more about her work, or follow her on Twitter and Instagram, at Black Urbanist. If you have even a passing interest in clean energy and climate change and moving our country beyond coal, then you've probably heard of Marianne Hitt. The West Virginia resident heads up the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. She's the National Campaign's Director here at the Sierra Club, and she's been working for years to close all coal plants in the United States and replace them with sources of renewable energy. It's a big goal, but it's one that's already well on its way to success. More than half of the nation's existing coal plants have closed or are set to retire. 
For Marianne's Brighter Futures essay, she wrote a letter from her imagined future to the younger generation leading the climate movement today. Here she tells us why her vision is full of optimism and hope. I want to talk to you to kind of start off on an emotional note. At the very beginning of your essay, you share this anecdote about giving a talk to some college students. I know you do that sort of stuff like all the time. You're out in the hustings. And you talk about a little bit of trepidation you feel um, because you don't want to obviously like disempower or or put in a place of despair your audiences and especially young audiences. Um, I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit and also just talk about what do you find is the best antidote to despair when you're when you're out doing that um, that kind of public education work? Absolutely. You know, I am a generation Xer and so I did not grow up with this really visceral um, physical immediate fear and anxiety about climate change, but when I talk to college students, when I work with younger folks in the movement, uh, when you look at the Sunrise Movement, you look at the urgency that the youth climate movement is bringing to this issue. You know, they don't they don't see it as a problem for polar bears or a problem for their grandchildren. Uh, they see it as a real threat to the immediate choices in front of them. Like, should I have kids? Am I going to be able to get a job doing something I love, or am I going to need to devote myself to this crisis? I mean, you see, you know, Greta Thunberg kind of embodies that. And so I'm just mindful of how much anxiety uh, young people are bringing to the climate fight. And while it is really serious, there's also a lot we can do. And so I'm just really mindful of not not adding to that anxiety um, when there is still so much that we can do. You took this kind of really interesting tack where you, you wrote this, as you titled it, a love letter from the clean energy future. And it's sort of you imagine yourself in 2030 uh, looking back, just like briefly, like walk us through it. Like what does the, the, the just clean energy future of, uh, look like? Well, you know, I, f- I framed it as a love letter for a couple of reasons. One is because I am a mom. And so I was really thinking about, you know, my daughter is 10, she'll be 20. And uh, she really will be asking me what I did over the past decade. And so I was thinking about her. And I also think that as climate activists, we we most often operate out of our head and less often from our hearts. And I think that that's from our, when we come from our hearts, that's when we connect with people better. And so it was a, a kind of an anchor for me to remember to do that. And the other reason I framed it that way is because when I think a lot of times when we think about solving the climate crisis, um, we are told that the solutions are going to make our lives harder and less joyful. And, uh, you know, I live in West Virginia. And so I know that people who live in areas where the economy is based on fossil fuels are especially fearful about what the future looks like if we tackle the climate crisis. But I know that if you look ahead, uh, if we were to tackle this crisis, um, our lives would be better. The air would be cleaner. The water would be cleaner. There would be lots of new economic opportunities in clean energy uh, and in communities of color that have borne the brunt of environmental injustice. We would finally be cleaning up these pollution hotspots. And so imagining that we're actually there and looking back, uh, it was um, it was a great reminder to me too of the importance of painting the picture of that positive future we're trying to work towards as we tackle the climate crisis. What do you say to folks who who have a hard time? I mean, I think you sketched such a beautiful vision here, but a lot of people do have a hard time, like getting over the hump. Like, 
what do you find is sometimes the most effective just way to talk about it, to, to get them to, to feel and see this vision clearly for themselves? Well, when I think back to the college students that I referenced at the beginning of the essay, a lot of times folks don't realize how much progress we've already made. You know, we have over half of our coal plants announced to retire this year. We're on track to get more power from renewable energy than coal for the first time ever. And again, renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels in most parts of the country. And so in that, if you think about the decade behind us and how much progress we made without the economic winds at our back, without this huge political movement in the streets, without any kind of leadership really um, in the White House on climate, still we made all of this progress. And so now imagine what we can do with all of that, with all the technological solutions we need, with the political movement, with champions in the White House, with the economic winds at our back. Um, I think amazing things are possible. And I think a lot of folks just don't, they don't realize that that is within our reach. And, you know, as I lay out on the piece, you know, we get a power grid powered with 100% clean energy. We electrify everything, our cars and our buildings. Um, and we have a movement uh, that makes that happen. And again, I think by the end of this decade, we can look back and have stepped back from the cliff of climate chaos. And I think that unfortunately, most of the news people hear about climate is bad news and that it's hopeless. And I am here to say to anyone who will listen that it's not too late and that everything we do right now matters. 20 years from now, it, it might be too late to really turn this around, but it's not too late today. It's not too late now. And we have this incredible opportunity to be alive in this time when we can still turn this around when everything we do matters and we have some incredible forces behind us. And that in this piece, that's what I was trying to put myself in that place of looking back and imagining that we actually did it and we can look our kids in the eye, you know, and um, let them know we didn't let them down. You know, we started this talking about emotion and, and you end the essay in, in a way sort of on emotion as well. Um, you write that, you know, all of our great spiritual traditions have taught us that new beginnings are often born during our most difficult days. And I know this is kind of a personal question, but I'm curious, does does that spirit, or if you want to call it faith or whatever, does that play a role in, in, in sort of fueling your own commitment and your own passion and activism? You know, I, I think when things are the hardest, it is when you most want to give up. And when I think about what the word faith means to me, it's not, to me, it's not quote unquote, believing in something that's going to happen after you die or what have you. To me, faith is, um, it is doing the work that we're doing in these very hard times with a deep rooted belief that something good will come of it. And you can't always know what the outcomes of your actions will be. You can't always know what the impact will be that you're going to have generations down the line. But knowing that if you put your whole heart and your whole self into doing good work to make the world a better place, that you're aligning yourself with the forces of creation, the forces of you know life that are at work in this world every day, 
um, that is something that definitely has gotten me through some hard times. And, uh, I think we all, we need all the help we can get, <laughs> uh, after the year that we've just had here in 2020. And I hope those words will get other people through some hard times. It's uh, obviously things are looking brighter than when we first, you know, offer this opportunity to contribute to this next issue. But, um, I just want to thank you for all your words and your wisdom and your energy. And, and I hope that what you shared will, will remind folks that, yeah, this, you know, this, this work of rebuilding a better world is the work of a generation, but it's also a work of faith. Um, and, and that's a good thing. Well, you know, I think whether it's climate change, environmental justice, um, yeah, racial justice, the opportunity to build a better world um, is right in front of us. And I woke up a couple of days after the election feeling this huge sense of relief that, hey, we might, we can do some things now. We can actually put our shoulders to the wheel in solving some of these problems. And so I'm happy to share some of those thoughts with the magazine and with you here today. And again, just really appreciate the opportunity. Well, let's get to it. Let's go get to work, everybody. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much, Marianne. That was Marianne Hint. You can read her full essay on our website later this month or check out her own podcast, No Place Like Home. We are young people who have witnessed a world in chaos careening toward climate catastrophe. We've watched and waited our entire lives for people much older and more powerful than us to take care of the crises that were emerging. Yet little has happened. Now our generation standing up to say we are ready to be the adults in the room. We are ready to take the future into our own hands. We are ready to envision reality in a different way. That's Varshini Prakash. She's the co-founder and executive director of the Sunrise Movement. And that's her reading from her essay about what a brighter future looks like from the eyes of a young activist. Let's hear a little bit more. Right now, we are seeing an expansion of what is possible. Take, for example, someone like Joe Biden, the very definition of a moderate candidate, who at the beginning of 2020 had one of the weakest climate plans amongst all the Democratic candidates. The pandemic hit, and then a massive uprising around racial injustice took the country and the world by storm. Biden has defined himself over his career largely as an incrementalist. Yet now, because of these huge systems disrupting problems and the calls for transformative change, he's being forced to consider far bigger, far broader, and far more transformational solutions. They might actually be system-shifting reforms. For example, his climate plan grew from a $1.7 trillion green jobs and infrastructure plan over 10 years to a $2 trillion plan over four years with 40% of those investments going directly to frontline communities. It's hard to even fathom what that could do for communities of color and poor people around the nation. It's far more than any other president or president-elect has committed to on this issue. The biggest thing that needs to happen for a better future is that ordinary people need to get more power. I don't expect power holders or people in office to make that happen. We have to build movements. In particular, we need to rebuild youth movements and the labor movement. We have to have the discipline, strategic acumen, and intellect of the fighters who came before us. And we have to grow our ranks by orders of magnitude. The truth is, you can dream up all the white papers you want and create all the policy proposals that you want, but we can't enact any of it into reality if we don't have power. 
That is the bottom line for me when answering almost any question about what is and isn't possible in the next few years. The road forward is uncertain, but the question of what's possible stretches us to open up our imagination and create new worlds in ways that we might never have dreamed of before. In the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, a massive proposed export terminal for fracked gas threatens the health and welfare of residents in the town of Brownsville. The negative effects of the oil and gas industry aren't news to Christopher Basaldo, who grew up along the Gulf Coast. I remember as a kid, you know, sometimes these little balls of tar or balls of oil would just be floating in the water. When we would go to the beach, we would always have to make sure that we had some baby oil, mineral oil, to sort of wipe off oil if it got onto our skin. In fact, his family and his tribe know all too well about the impacts of the fossil fuel economy. And that's why Christopher is fighting for justice. I, I live in Brownsville, Texas, and of course on my indigenous side, um, my ancestors have been here forever. <laughs> we call ourselves Eshtokna, human person in our language, uh, but it's also known as the Carrizo Come Crudo tribe of Texas. The area that's now, you know, you look at it and you think of it as the port of Brownsville, the ship channel, this area. These lands are lands of the Eshtokna, of our ancestors. And so, you know, there were villages. And on top of that, this area was it has been inhabited for thousands and thousands of years. There are gatherings places, there's villages. Of course, if somebody's born, yay. There is the indigenous practice of burying the umbilical cord in Mother Earth to connect, literally connect, a human being to the Earth. Uh, if somebody dies, we bury them in the ground. And of course, indigenous ways didn't put granite headstones with names and dates on them to mark a burial of a loved one. There are other ways that they were marked in the memory, marked in the consciousness. My point in all of that is there are burials that have been disturbed by the dredging of the ship channel. To create the ship channel in the first place destroyed lots of historic, archaeological, and ancestral resources. One project in particular, Texas LNG Project, would destroy what remains of an area called Garcia Pasture that has actual human remains, burial sites, and archaeological evidence on that land. Technically, the land is, you know, from a colonial perspective, the land is owned by the, the, the port of Brownsville itself. In a very deep spiritual sense, this is still our land. This is still our ancestral land, and we're trying to protect it from being further destroyed and further desecrated. So the area, in a way, has already been destroyed and desecrated by the port and the ship channel itself. The tribe wants to stop any further destruction and any further desecration. No benefit, no benefit whatsoever comes to the people. Remember, it's for export. Nobody in the United States is going to get any of that gas. It's all from private companies to send the export to the global market so that those fat cats, greedy men can get richer. All of these, all of this destruction is being facilitated by our governments with no 
without listening to the voice of the people, ignoring indigenous people like the Cariso Comicrudo tribe of Texas, for what? Just so a very small minority of people can make money. People here just have become so used to how things harm us and hurt us here that, uh, that sometimes people forget that we can change it. And so we need to try to change it, make things better. I mean, whether I have hope or not, I'm still going to struggle because I see this struggle as, as sort of a, a spiritual and moral imperative. You know, it doesn't matter how depressed I feel. It doesn't matter how bad it is. I still have to do something. I can't do nothing. That was Christopher Balsaldo in Brownsville, Texas. That story came to us from another Sierra Club podcast called The Land I Trust. It features short personal stories like this one from people all over the country who are fighting for a clean energy future. You can subscribe on any podcast platform or find it on all the usual social media corners at The Land I Trust. That's it for this episode. The Overstory is produced by Josephine Holtzman and Isaac Kestenbaum at Future Projects Media with help from Daniel Roth. Our theme music is by Jeff Brodsky. This episode was mixed by Merritt Jacob. I'm Jason Mark, and you've been listening to The Overstory. Overstory.